You're listening to the Nonprofit Problem Solver Podcast, brought to you by KevKayat.com. Kev helps nonprofit leaders deliver more impact faster and easier, so they can be mission accomplished in 40 hours a week or less. For more information, visit KevKayat.com. Now, here is the host of Nonprofit Problem Solver, Kev Kayat. Hey, Kev Kayat here. Welcome to Nonprofit Problem Solver. Thanks for tuning in. You are actually the Nonprofit Problem Solver. My job is to bring you practical, tactical expertise that you can use right now or in about an hour. You're about to hear the recording of me chatting one-to-one with an expert. You're more than welcome to join the next live call. Just zip on over to nonprofitproblemsolver.com to register. Episode 2 in the summer series continues the one-to-one format between me and a guest, and we also stick with the theme of fundraising. My guest today is Ria Wong, who's going to tell us how to put the fun in fundraising. Ria coaches and consults nonprofit leaders and has a regular podcast of her own, Nonprofit Lowdown. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this week's Nonprofit Problem Solver. We are in the summer series. This is our second episode, and we are blessed to have the presence of a uh, fundraising expert, Ria Wong. So we're going to be spending the next hour or so learning why the word fundraising begins with fun. (laughs) Hi, Ria. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. The funny thing is I, I once said that to my board, and they were also like, well, you know, the word Fun is also a dysfunctional. And I was like, that's not helpful. But thank you. (laughs) Fundamental, but yeah. Okay, so um, just tell us a little bit about your nonprofit background. Uh I know you're um, joining us from Brooklyn. I am. And and then uh, I want to hear a bit about your your own podcast, uh, Nonprofit Lowdown, and then a bit about some of the consulting and training that you do. And then we'll get into uh, fundraising more specifically. Cool. Definitely. Well, thanks so much for having me. Hi, everyone. Nice to see you. So I uh, started off my career uh, as an accidental ED, which I feel like is not an uncommon thing. So there's I, a movie called that, right? Accidental, accidental ED. ED. I know. I, I, I think it's I, a comedy, almost certainly a comedy. Or a tragedy, depending. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I, you know, I started in nonprofit in, at an educational nonprofit in San Francisco. Uh, and as happens in a nonprofit, like you just stick around long enough and you get promoted because like there's no one else to do the job. And then I was a 26 year old ED here in New York of a nonprofit called Break to New York, which is a college access college success program. And I talk about this all the time, but I literally, you know, 26 years old, I Google like how to fundraise. <laughs> what does an ED do? And at the time, I think my budget was something like $250,000 and I had two and a half staff members, including myself, in a broom closet. Like our our office was so small. You literally had to like stand up to let the person pass by to get out of the office. <laughs> uh, and so over 12 and a half years, 
I was able to work with my team. We grew a budget to just a little under three million in private dollars. Uh, by the time I left, we were serving 550 kids a year for 10 years. So we got them when they were entering seventh grade and supported them for 10 years to and through college. Wow. Um, and through that whole process, I learned a lot, uh, particularly about fundraising, board management, scaling up a staff. So I feel like in some ways, similar to you, Kevin, I'm kind of the jack of all trades, but I, I think I really shined with fundraising. And then... Um, you went through the, sorry to cut you, cut in there, you um, grew that organization from very small to a decent size and went through several, several phases, several iterations of, of, of what the most demanding feature of that particular time was. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like even though technically it was one job, I feel like I had three very distinct phases of that job as we scaled. Um, and then the other piece to note is like, we actually didn't receive any government money at all. So all of the 3 million was privately raised every year, um, which, you know, I think is, is its own sort of special challenge. Um, and then- Particularly in education. That's a, Particularly that's in education, yeah. Yeah, I mean, Actually, it's funny. I just got off a phone call with a bunch of other executive directors here in New York, and everyone's freaking out right now because of all the budget cuts. And, mm-hmm. um, but you know, we we never got government money, which in some ways was a, a blessing uh, because when budget cuts come around, it's very hard to make up that money. And then a couple years ago, so back in twenty end of twenty seventeen, I transitioned out of the role just because I I was tired. I think Edie will tell you 12 and a half years is feels like dog years. <laughs> and I started doing my own consulting. So I, I now run Rio Wong Consulting. I do primarily fundraising and strategy development. And I have a podcast called Nonprofit Lowdown devoted to nonprofit business matters. So that's that's what's up with me. Wow, that's fantastic. So you think uh, out of all the things that you had to do in your ED that um, fundraising was where you specialized and, and hence why you refer to it as fun. You know, I, I do. And I think fundraising is the thing that has the biggest impact on the ability to do the work. Um, I will say, though, that I did not start off thinking that fundraising was fun. I was really I was sort of a reluctant fundraiser. Um, and so, you know, I think as happens with a lot of new EDs or new fundraisers, like we started with, you know, some, some private foundation grants, then we were able to build our board. And then we started to get individual grants and uh, corporate made up of a very small percentage, about 10%, I would say of our whole, then we started doing our annual gala. So that was like gala money. Um, so it was like a slow process of building. But I will say at the beginning, I just really thought of fundraising as kind of a necessary evil. And, um, and actually, I'm planning a training myself uh, to help folks who have budgets under a million think about this because I think the switch for me was dealing with my own baggage about money. So I think we all have baggage about money. I think that mm-hmm. if you are a fundraiser, it is critical that you really deal with your baggage about money. And so for me, my baggage was that I, you know, I grew up in San Francisco. My parents are first generation Americans and my grandparents are immigrants to this country. And my parents both, you know, worked really hard. We grew up in like a very, you know, typical middle class family. But um, I think because my parents had grown up very poor, there was always a scarcity mindset about money. And so 
in my family, money was like to be saved and to be hoarded. And, and, you know, we weren't very philanthropic because we really thought of money as a, as a scarce resource. And so I remember pretty distinctly growing up in San Francisco in the eighties, as is similar now, uh, there were a lot of homeless people in San Francisco and it was also the height of the AIDS crisis. And I remember being young, like maybe eight or nine, and I gave a quarter to a homeless person and my, I actually got in trouble with my parents because their response was like, oh, well, so you have so much money now that you can just give it away. And so in my mind, like my very young mind, I've been equated money with security. And so as a grown up, I had a hard time fundraising because I always felt like asking people for money was asking them to give up their security because I just sort of assumed that everyone had the same baggage about money that I had about money. And it really wasn't until I started to excavate that that I, that I became a really effective fundraiser and actually realized like how fun fundraising can be because it's actually this really creative generative process where you are matching your resources with other people's resources and building something together. That's a fascinating story. And, it, and it's interesting because you, you referred to at the very beginning uh, what made the switch for you. And, mm-hmm. and just before that, uh, had this, were we writing this down? I, I would whipped out a highlighter pen because you said that uh, fundraising is what has the most impact uh, mm-hmm. enabling to do the work. But basically, I think what you're saying is outside of the actual programming, which which generates the benefits for the people that we serve, that fundraising then is the next most impactful thing. Is that, Just have I got that? I, got that I mean, right? look, Kev, I would say, you know, if we say that your organization is a car and that the work that you do is the destination that you want to get to, then money is the gas in the car. So you can have mm-hmm. like the most amazing mission in the world, but if you have no gas to actually get the car to the destination, it doesn't really matter how wonderful the destination is or how fancy your car is. Like you need the gas. And so, you know, I think that all of these pieces are critical in order to really deliver on the mission. Gotcha. Okay. And I think that I've heard, um, you know, a number of people say that, that, the most successful and effective nonprofits are able to uh, or or treat fundraising on an equal par with their programming, where we have this tendency sometimes, I think you described it as a scarcity mindset. I think there are other uh, other descriptions of a mindset where we're focused on the work mm-hmm. and and serving and hoping that the money will either take care of itself or someone else will take care of it, or there's a big lottery ticket. Um, or events that's going to generate lots and lots of uh, revenue. Yeah, I mean, I always say this: hope is not a strategy. <laughs> like a lottery ticket is not a strategy. Um, and I, I, and like I don't really know where it comes from, but I, I agree. What I've observed is that nonprofit leaders generally don't like they're not comfortable with the finances. They don't necessarily like to talk about money. Board members don't like to talk about money. Because uh, we got into this work to like do good for people, and while that's true, I always remind people of this: nonprofits are businesses, and if you don't have revenue coming in, you can't do the work. And so, I think as leaders, we have to both like ourselves get comfortable with talking about money and talking about money with our staff and talking about money with our board, because without the money, the work does not happen. Yeah, the uh, nonprofit is not a business model. It's a it's a tax status. Exactly. <laughs> uh, wh- what was it that prompted you or helped you recognize that you had these 
issues with, with money that you needed to address? Well, you know, it's like the various trainings that you go to and a lot of self-work and self-inquiry. Um, but, you know, I think once you kind of come to terms with it, it's almost like, it's almost like therapy. It's like once you say it out loud, you're like, okay, well now I can deal with it. And now I can actually examine the assumptions and the baggage that I have. And for me, you know, part of it was my own baggage about money. Part of it too was like fear of rejection, right? Like no one likes to get rejected and it feels like they ask can feel so, um, so scary. I mean, it's like asking someone out, you're like, Oh my God, if I get rejected. And I think the, the key for me too, is just like doing more asks and like getting used to the ask and, and recognizing that it's not personal, which is hard because I think as nonprofit leaders, our nonprofits are our babies. And so when you get rejected, it feels like, Oh my God, like, are, are you saying that I have an ugly baby? Because um, yeah, our, our identities overlap with our missions to a certain right. extent. Yeah. Totally. And especially for me, I mean, in some ways I was kind of a quasi founder, right? Uh, and so it was very much wrapped up in who I was. And then I, you know, once I started to get a little bit, uh, my skin started to get a bit tougher and, and realizing too, that like, it's not personal and like, not every single person is going to love your cause. And like, that's okay. Because we also need a lot of people to care about other causes. Like, so people who, yeah, I would talk to people and they'd be like, you know what, I'm really invested in like in the environment or I'm really invested in like policy reform. It's like, great. Awesome. I'm so glad you are like, cause we need those people too. And yeah. so I guess I just started to shift the mindset around fundraising as being less of like this desperate act and more about like, how can I find the people who are in my tent who like want to be on my team? And how did you do that? You just have to talk to people. <laughs> like that's the thing. That's the thing no about substitute for the shoe leather, right? I mean, the thing about the fundraising and especially now, well, in the age of COVID, I think it's hard. But at the end of the day, no fancy strategy, no digital strategy, no like fancy email campaign is going to substitute for the person-to-person connection. Like you, you have to pick up the phone, you have to have the meeting, and you have to like ask good questions. Um, you know, the th- like one of the things that I went into fundraising believing, which turned out to be totally false was like, you have to have a good pitch, right? Or a good pitch deck. And so like, I, you know, put these like elaborate pitch decks together. I had like my PowerPoints and my talking points. And there was never any combination of words that I could say to get people to write me a check. And it wasn't until I stopped pitching and started connecting with people and actually just like talk to them like I was a human being and like they were a human being. And like, did we have things in common? Did we see things that we could do together. And like, that's when fundraising started to become fun for me. Cause it just like pitching just felt like this empty, you know, like I was throwing tennis balls into a vacuum cleaner and connecting just felt like I was making new friends. So stop pitching and start connecting. And that, that points to the notion of uh, fundraising as relationship building. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, I think the best fundraisers are people who genuinely like people. You know, and, and I don't think it's like an introvert extrovert thing either. I mean, obviously you have to be comfortable on some level talking to people you don't know, but I think it's really like, I think about philanthropy as a word, it's love of humanity. Like, do you just genuinely love human beings? Do you, are, do you find them interesting? <laughs> do you like talking to people? Like I'm 
endlessly fascinated by people, which is why I love my podcast, because I get to talk to people who say smart things. Yeah, well, I'm experiencing that right now. So I can I can confirm the enjoyment of it. Uh, <laughs> what um, what have you what let's let's take a, a, a side switch up and just tell me about the training that you're doing now and what uh, you hear from your clients are their greatest needs. And, yeah. and how you address that and what I know you've got a couple of really exciting events coming up. Yeah, so so I do have my webinars which are free and and sort of touch on relevant topics. Of late uh we've been touching a lot on a lot of racial equity mm-hmm. questions because you know I think that's just what the history has has handed us an opportunity. Um truthfully I'm still kind of working on what this looks like but uh I actually think I'd I'm working on a training specifically for nonprofit executive directors of budgets around a million dollars, because I feel like a lot of times the fundraising advice you get is so generic. I mean, look, there's some like good fundraising principles, but the kind of strategies you can implement as a small under million dollar nonprofit is really different than if you're a $10 million, right? Like if you're 10 million, you've got a department, you've got... Mm -hmm backup, you probably have a fancy CRM system. If you're under a million dollars, you're it, you're doing everything. And so like what strategies are actually implementable and actually going to be the most effective bank for your buck. And so I'm still working on it to be continued. Um, Hopefully, you know, in the next month or so, I will have a clear idea of what that looks like. But um, I think I think a lot of time, I mean, so 66% of our nonprofit sector have budgets under a million dollars. So that means like there are a lot of nonprofits out there that are really struggling to raise a million. And so I feel like I have some special expertise around scaling from that one to three million. Look, I don't know that my expertise is is so applicable if you have a ten million dollar budget, but I definitely know I can get people from (laughs) one to three. I've done it. So how um how if if you're a not a not a founder and you walk into a uh, a new role as an ED in that sort of budget range say uh 750 750,000 to to a million how do you assess the priority since you can't do everything how mm-hmm. do you decide what what is and I don't mean what the answers are because that's going to be different from situation to situation about what the actual priorities mm-hmm. are but how do you start to think about it what would you say to an ED in that, in that role? Yeah. Um, again, it, it is so specific, uh, but I would say, uh, or what to, questions might you ask to probe yeah. and get the right information? That might be a, a yeah. better way of addressing it. So, so I talk a lot about, and, and I don't mean this to be like offensive cause I actually love elephants, but like, what is the elephant and what are the rabbits? So I feel like as an executive director, you end up chasing a lot of like little rabbits down the holes. So like, okay, we're, we got to chase like that $5,000 and then like the $3,000. Um, and instead like, where can you actually leverage the most impact for for your time. And like, that does mean doubling down maybe on like, okay, well, we're going to spend a lot more time working on this $50,000 grant, but that means that we're not going to be spending our time like on these three $5,000 grants. Right. Um, so, you know, I think that, my- that notion of what you're not going to do is, is one of the hardest things to come to grips with. Yeah. You know, if you're going to have a sustainable, you know, uh, lifestyle as an, as a, as an executive that you can't simply just do everything because yeah. it, it's never ending. 
Well, and, and especially when you have like board members who give you like the brilliant ideas and you're like, oh, no, we're not. Like, I don't know if folks on the call, but like, <laughs> you know, the ice bucket challenge, like when that went around, uh-huh. all my board members were like, why don't we just do the ice bucket challenge? And I was like, okay, okay, <laughs> let's take a step back here. So you would like for me to spend my time putting a viral video together because like we know exactly what will be viral. Exactly. Because, you know, people on Madison Avenue know what that is. So, of course, we know what that is. Or, like, we could do something else. So, I think part of it, too, is reminding people that there is, a like, a trade-off, right? And so, my favorite question to board members, we're like, that is a really interesting idea. What would you like me to stop doing then? Mm-hmm. Like, what of all of the things that I'm doing do you want me to put aside? Or like the brilliant, my other favorite one was like, well, if everybody in New York gave us a dollar, I was like, do you know everybody in New York? Are they on your speed dial? I think that is a terrible strategy. Or, well, why don't we just call Oprah slash Mark Zuckerberg slash Bill Gates? Like, unless you know those people, unless you're like at their wedding, I don't want to hear it. Yeah. And and it applies, you know, across the board. I see it often with, uh, um, mission statements that are so broad and which is sort of part of the nature of the of the beast if you will and uh and and then almost every idea that someone's going to generate is consistent with the mission if it's sort of you know and but you can't do quite a lot of them because they end up diluting what you're already doing yeah i mean i think we in the nonprofit sector uh, and particularly for smaller nonprofits, we really need to get out of like shiny object mode. And like, I'm guilty of it. I have like professional ADD, right? Which is great that I'm a consultant. But, uh, you know, when board members come up with these ideas, it's because what they're saying is they actually don't want to fundraise. Here's my, here's my contribution. Here's I've my contribution. Great idea. Yeah, go. And now uh, leave me alone for the rest of the year. <laughs> That's right. Like I, I actually had, I, I don't remember if you, I don't know if you remember this, but like a couple of years ago, like everyone and their mother was giving away money. If you like liked their Facebook page, whatever, you know, or like clicked on this like a million times. And so one of my board members had this brilliant idea of like, well, why don't we just take like one of our assistants and just have her sit there and like click it a million times. And I was like, okay, okay. Number one, let me explain to you how the internet works. Number two, (laughs) no, that's a terrible idea. Um, and so what I would say for smaller nonprofits is that you have to pick a few strategies and work them and like be really disciplined about following through because often it looks like a failure in the middle, right? Yeah. But it usually takes about a year to two to see if a strategy actually works. That's that's a really interesting time frame because I um I know with a uh, several years in context of target setting, people want to see results almost of instantaneously. Of course we do. And uh, it, it's obviously not realistic. But I think, uh, you know, as we're mentioning uh, leveraging the board, that's another developmental issue that mm-hmm. it takes a long, you might have to go through a whole uh, sort of board re- membership renewal cycle in in order to get a high functioning board from a fundraising perspective not to say they're not high functioning from a, a governance and, and other and, and other roles but uh yeah. from a fundraising perspective yeah i mean look have you know this is true which is 
it's it's a process, right? So like the board that you have at $250,000 is it's going to look very different than the board that you have at 2.5 million, which is going to look really different than the board that you have at 5 million. But, you know, the key here, both in terms of staff and board is always constantly upgrading. And then there will be moments, at least in my experience, building a board, you'll have a key, couple key members that like are pivot members. Um, and again, there's like no substitute other than like, continuing to talk to people, continuing to make sure that you're, you recruit, making sure that you're orienting them so that they understand what their job is. Cause like, it just drives me crazy when people are brought on the board and then they're like, Oh, no one ever told me fundraising was part of it. I was like, well, what the hell were you talking about? Like, yeah, we don't yeah. need more I mean, board, board development starts with the uh, recruitment. That's right. Uh, like, like every other member of staff really. Mm -hmm. uh, but um, as a, is it, is, is it would be uh, in, in a, arsenal or the options of strategies that someone can choose as a new ED in a smaller nonprofit is developing the board to be high functioning fundraisers, a, a strategy in its own right. Yes. And I would say it's probably a full-time job. Uh, and so where I see a lot of executive directors, especially uh, small shops try to do is that they try to do it alone or they try to like navigate around the board. And so I think the key is to have a, a strong board president as your partner in this, because like you cannot do it alone. You've got too many other things to do. Um, yeah. I also I, think I'm, I'm finding, uh, sorry to cut you, but uh, I'd love your take on this. It seems to me that the, the, the most vital relationship in the success of a nonprofit is the relationship between the ED and the, the board chair, board president. Yeah, yeah, uh, 100%. I mean, I will say though, not to be not to be quoted on this, but you know, my, um, I feel like I didn't really have a, a very effective board chair until I hit about a million. Um, and so all of that fundraising that happened up to a million, I, I was sort of able to do despite the board, not because of the board. But once I had a really effective board chair, and by effective board chair, I meant somebody who actually had the time to devote the clarity of understanding of what we were doing and the capacity to write a significant check, we skyrocketed. Like we went from a million to two like that because I all of a sudden had a partner on the team. And would you have done what you've learned uh, as you scaled up above a million to two and then on to three? Did you ever think, had I known what I know now when I was at 500,000 or so, I would have accelerated our growth. I would have done things oh, yeah. differently. Yeah, and yeah. What, what are some of those, what are some of those things? Yeah, I mean, I have made all of the mistakes, which is why I feel like I can consult. So... Uh, a couple of big mistakes I think we made. Um, number one, not investing early enough in infrastructure. So I feel like our information on like donor tracking and stewardship was not great. And so our donor retention could have been a lot better if we had better systems. I feel like... Particularly um, in that case where you said you were so reliant on individual donors that's right that to, to miss out on retention yeah. is um you know you're probably looking in hindsight going wow we, we missed one there 
Yeah, I mean, I was lucky enough that our, our database was small enough at the time that I, I had uh, a pretty good beat on most folks. But I think if I had spent more time to systematize, we could have scaled faster. Um, I is think, there a, is, I keep cutting, I know I keep interrupting yeah, you, no, but no, you're no, just please. throwing all these, um, it's because you have so much knowledge that you're, that each statement you make is going to be pulled apart into little things. So that's what I'm doing. Oh, <laughs> is there a, is there a particular threat? I get asked this so many times. Is there a particular threshold or size of budget at which you believe someone really needs to have a a decent CRM that Google Sheets and Excel just not going to cut it anymore or a certain number of donors for example yeah you know I I don't know that I think there's a threshold I will say though that um, your CRM system is probably gonna look different at, at various stages and I would say that you should invest in the best functionality that you can at the price that you can afford because I think so often we try to like cheap out and be like, well, we don't really need like that function, but it ends up right. costing you in the end. Um, so, I mean, I would say like, I, based on no data whatsoever, if you're raising any anywhere north of a hundred thousand dollars, I would say like time to invest in some kind of CRM. Oh, so we have CRM, but don't add relationship tracking info yet. Okay, so I think. That's uh, an opportunity because actually when we think about the way that people give money, they give because their peers ask them. And so one of the things I'm, I'm quite proud of is when we transitioned to our CRM, we did this like very big sort of Cadillac bells and whistles blowout. Um, but the thing, the two things that I, no, sorry, the three things I would really recommend, and this is Salesforce, this is not like a Salesforce ad, you can do this with any CRM. The three things I recommend, number one, uh, a functionality that pulled my uh, my Google emails and my Google calendar invites directly into the donor profile because, like, let's face it, I'm not going to remember to like write up the notes. Right. Right. So it's like anything. Or double that, entry. You know, you had a meeting with this person. So I'm not going to remember to do it. Let's yeah. just be let's just be honest with each other. Um, and so anything that can be used to automate that is helpful. Number two, and again, this is like super fancy, but uh, I invested in wealth screening. And so we had it embedded within our CRM system, but I think wealth screening in general, even if you do a one-time screen of your donor database is worthwhile because I feel like it's like this weird alchemy. Like I, I feel like fundraisers really rely on like their feelings about stuff and it's like, Okay, but the thing is, we actually have data, and so like we should use that data. And look, just because somebody could give you a hundred thousand dollars doesn't necessarily mean that they will give you a hundred thousand dollars. But it's important to know which of these people could, because it it then forces you to prioritize. And so again, I'm I'm a big fan of like being as efficient as possible. Um, and again, it's not a perfect science, especially here in New York City, where people buy real estate through like shell companies or co-ops that aren't public information. Right. It can be hard to, to get sort of the true wealth of folks, but you know, it's, it's better than nothing. Um, and then the third piece is around relationship mapping. And so this is like a huge piece. So between like um, scraping my board members, LinkedIn profiles, and then, and like looking at the, 
people that they put on their introduction list, I was able to construct like networks and like there are various apps that allow you to like get a visual data map of people's networks. And so literally at one board meeting, I printed out everyone's relationship maps and I gave it to them. And I was like, so based on like this, this graphic, like we can actually see how much you are bringing to the table as far as your relationships, right? Um, and so- I bet that was scary. You have this much information about me? I mean, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, so I, I think those are kind of the three critical, I forget the question that you asked, Kevin. I, I well, it, 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 it was, it was um, about the threshold at which you got into your uh, CRM and, yeah. and, 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 and we were discussing how the, uh, the sort of look and feel of your CRM will change based on your size as you grow, but there are certain, certain things you want together. And I, and, and, and I know it's, it's tempting to try and get a uh, system as, as cheap as possible. Uh, and then in some systems we end up having to cobble together yeah. our other systems and they don't talk. We spend a lot of time and effort getting them to speak to each other when maybe, mm -hmm. uh, a bit more of a financial investment would save us some more time because they're they're integrated you know you mentioned being able to to uh integrate with your with your calendar yeah. uh you know i know there's some that are really uh they are not true crms they 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 are donor databases or donor tech that will connect to your email automator for example mm -hmm. uh and and so they that because your email system doesn't collect those features about every individual person. Yeah. So this donor stuff, and you end up getting, you know, all these different systems that sometimes and sometimes don't speak to each other as efficiently as you, as you need them to. Yeah. And, you know, I would say to that too, like we're kind of living in a golden age of technology. And so my recommendation is to really start from like what you need and then go out and look at what's on the market. Right. Cause I think so often we, we, come from the other end of like, oh, like here's all these different systems and different functionalities. Um, but I would start with your need first. And you know, to my mind, the kind of basic needs are uh, like gift tracking, uh, ability to track communications via you know, digital or meetings, um, some kind of relationship mapping. I mean, you can get really fancy with it. Like at one point we were considering like, do we write an algorithm where it scrapes every potential donor's social media? So every time like they are like mentioned in the media or in the news, like we'll get an alert and it's like, okay, fine. Like you can get that fancy, but like for smaller nonprofits, I would say, what is the minimum viable product that you need to address your needs, but also be really clear about what it is you need. And, and just to put it in, in, in genuine context, you mentioned, uh, and with a caveat based on no data, <laughs> you mentioned a threshold of around a hundred thousand. So you're basically saying if you're, if you're going to raise from individual donors, six figures, uh, then you really need to have you know that that sort of infrastructure, uh, and and I know you can get systems for you know starting at fifty hundred dollars a month. Sometimes they mm -hmm. go up to a few hundred dollars a month. So you're talking if you know at most maybe three four thousand dollars a year uh, as an ROI. You know, or in terms of or the proportion for six figure, it does. It seems that seems not terribly out of balance. Is yeah. that a fair way of assessing it? Yeah. I mean, I think in the nonprofit field, we we have this terrible habit of thinking of every expense as an outlay of money as opposed to an investment. And I think when 
you consider your CRM system, like that is one area you probably should not cheap out on because to your point, Kev, like we do end up cobbling things together. The data gets dirty. Um, you end up like spending hours trying to figure out how to make this thing talk to this. And you're like creating like different zappier things. It's like, it's a mess, right? So like, yeah. can you invest in just one single source of truth? Because if you're not keeping that data clean, you don't have any money coming in. Like I just, right. you know, don't mess right. with the money. Um, and then I have another question coming in. Apps I suggest for creating visual relationship maps. So the app I use is actually connected to Salesforce. So if you're not on Salesforce, this probably won't work for you. But there are a bunch out there. Like there's Relsci, there's Muckety. Um, I used Loom, which is connected to Salesforce. It just, um, you know, but you can also like, do it via Excel sheet. Like this is not, you don't have to get like super duper fancy with it. We're finding like a millennial to like make some fancy graphics. Cause really what you're trying to do is just scrape people's LinkedIn. And so, um, cause the other thing that board members always say is like, I don't know anybody. And then you're like, okay, fine. You get on their LinkedIn you pull a bunch of names and, and it's either like you have them go through it and they're like, Oh, I actually don't know this person. Or like, Oh yeah, I, I forgot. I knew that person from law school. So in some ways, like you have to do the work for them because mm -hmm. they're, they're just not going to do it. Like, let's just, let's just be honest. Right. Okay. So um, in terms of the, the, the work, let's just talk about board members again. Uh, there's the relationship side uh, and then there's the, the asking side. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, I'm a, one of my earlier uh podcasts we had uh, in the marketing and fundraising panel, someone recommending a fundraising or development plan per board member. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, as a best, a best practice. And that was, um, that certainly raised a lot of attention. Have you seen that work in practice? Is that something that you did? Oh, yeah. So every single year, um, we had, uh, we revisited their board commitment we had a development director and myself and the board chair and the development chair, some combination of those three, um, work with every single board member on their plan for the year. And that plan included both like, what are they personally committing? Are they like, which events are they personally committing to attend? Which like volunteer opportunities are they going to attend? And how much, uh, how much are they, given for the gala. So like we would ask like, are, can we put you down for a table or two? And then how much they were committed to raising. Now, that being said, so we did have a give get uh, of $30,000 and of which 10 had to be give. Um, I had some board members who were like, look, I am never going to ask my friends for money, but uh, I will write a $30,000 check. I'm like, great. That will do that. Also, also, could you host something at your house? <laughs> right, right. It's always a, a yes and. Yeah. Um, and and look, the give I, and get was, was financial, did not include in-kind or other stuff. Can you pay your staff with in-kind? <laughs> right. <no. laughs> Is your staff accepting a flurry gift certificates in lieu of salary? Then no. Um, yeah, money. Right. Okay. Uh, Just clarify. I, I also, I'd love to talk about development directors for a second, if I may. You may. Do, do we have any development directors on this call or are you all EDs? I EDs. think that I'm um, just looking at the list. I think it's mostly EDs. Yeah. Okay. 
but in but in uh, but in organizations of the size where they're sort of doubling is development directors or may have some development assistants but yep. not necessarily a separate department Claire, that's yeah. right debbie isn't it you can yeah uh, yeah Debbie's yeah that, that's i mean under a million <laughs> you're not really gonna have a development director okay so i have like a, a personal pet peeve because i i think like the development director um pool is just it's it's uh, we, we've got a problem so number one i think there are not enough good development directors out there number two uh, i think retention is a problem so Development mm. directors generally tend to cycle in and out at about 18 months. I think, yeah, it's a trend. really short shelf life, isn't it? Well, and here's the issue. Either they don't know how to raise money and 18 months is about the time you're, you start to figure it out. <laughs> or they are really good and they get poached. Or they're being asked to do everything and, and like deliver the moon and it's unrealistic. So I think a lot of times people hire development directors thinking that like a, a magical like money fairy is going to come down from the sky and wave a magic wand and money is going to appear. And so um, because it's that person's job now. And so no one else has to do job, it. Right. 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 And, you know, and I, I will tell you quite frankly, like I, I had, I fired two development directors before I settled on the one that I ended up um being my my forever development director until I left. Um, and the reason why is like, there are lots of crappy development directors out there. And for a budget under a million dollars, you probably can't afford a really good one. So what that means is that you as an ED of, uh, of a small nonprofit are the chief fundraiser, which is actually fine because I think you have to learn how to fundraise. Um, and I think it means that you have to think about how to be creative with it. So for example, up to $2 million, I didn't even have a development director. I I was a development, mm -hmm. I had like a development assistant and a development manager to do a lot of the back end. But then I hired like a grants manager or a grant writer because as I was thinking about strategically, how am I using my time in the highest value way? My time was spent meeting people. My My time was not best spent sitting in like, you know, tooling around with like Excel spreadsheets. 500 characters to tell. Yeah, the, exactly. Tell like the, cutting and pasting in the yeah. thing, right? So like, <laughs> I think the key is is being ruthless about your time and where your biggest value add is and figuring out how you can cobble together a department so that you can be like the brilliant person you are doing the thing you do best while still making sure everything else gets done. And I will say that I think a lot of EDs, especially first time new EDs, shy away from that because like frankly they don't want to do the face-to-face -face fundraising because that's really scary so that so they like convince themselves that they're doing stuff by like filling out the grant you you're doing stuff but are you doing the highest value thing right right i wanted to come back to something you'd said earlier mm -hmm. uh which is which is the way we tend to think of all, all expenses as expenses rather than investments we're not really um attuned to think of ROIs or or the CRM for example as a as an investment the I, I want to just sort of shift it a, a bit downstream towards the the donors themselves mm -hmm. uh, and one of the things that that uh, I cover a lot is is trying to treat donors as investors and, and you sort of alluded to this where you said where are the right people and you had to go and find them and talk to them and and I think that's really important uh, and I want you to to, to uh, expand on that a little bit where you have donors that are going to be 
with you year in, year out because they're investing and like an investor has that mindset of they really want to see the results. They want to see what happens. It's not mm-hmm. a transactional uh, uh, participation or, or showing up at an event for one night and saying, sure, you know, I can afford $250 for, uh, for the meal and I'll, I'll put something in the silent auction, but then I don't mm-hmm. want to see you again because I mm-hmm. don't really understand who you are. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so I think of it similarly, but a little bit differently. So I actually don't think of donors as investors. I think of them as partners. And I think invest like, and I think the the wording makes a difference because I think investors still suggest that there's a, a power differential. Because if I'm an investor, I have the money, and if I'm investing in you, then somehow I own you. Instead, I think we have to fundraise not on our knees, but standing on our feet and realizing Mm -hmm. that like, if we are partners and if we are going to be partners on an equal level, that means that like you are with me and we are going to create something together, right? And like a good partnership, there's reciprocity, there's transparency, there's communication. And so often um, I think that they, like there is a tendency for people who, I don't want to like use such a broad brush here, but like I, I've definitely worked with funders who expected me to like sort of kiss the ring, which like yeah. fine, you know, that's like that does happen. But I also think we have to understand and have enough um, confidence in not working with those people because those people suck and those people will like suck your soul out of your eyeballs. Right, the wrong type of investor. So, so I, so yeah. interesting, interesting um, characterization there in terms of the power dynamic. Yeah, I mean, I think we we have to stop playing this power game, right? Because I, I, I think in the nonprofit sector, because it's so scarcity driven, we we're always like, you know, oh, but you have the power because you have the money without recognizing the resources that we bring to the table. Like when we talk to partners, it's not like they're going to be opening schools. They're not going to be saving elephants. They're not going to be like feeding the homeless. We are. And so how can you really get to the mindset of like, we are actually bringing resources to the table. You and partner are also bringing resources and let's do something big together. This is not like me on my knees again, you know, putting my begging bowl out. And that's why, and, and, and hence the shift as you started uh, with right at the outset, going from pitching to having conversations, getting to know people and developing relationships because the, again, it's sort of going from transactional to investment level, but I understand why you say you prefer the word partner. Yeah. And, and you know, I also think that part of the, internal work that we have to do as fundraisers is that we have to get over our own insecurity, right? I think we're so insecure about like, well, like I love my cause, but if like, will other people love my cause? And instead really switch that to my cause is worthy. My job is to figure out people who also believe in the thing that I'm doing and want to stand with me in the work. It's almost like, I mean, I, I don't want to be sexist about it, but I'm going to say it anyway. It's like, um, when you're like, I was thinking about those like funny teen movies where it's like the girl is the nerd and then she has a makeover and then she realizes she's like the homecoming queen, right? right. It's like, <laughs> we have to get to the part where we're like, where is she the homecoming queen? Like, why am I sitting in the, 
against the wall, like hoping that someone will notice me. Like we have to be confident enough in our cause and, and our work. And again, I think that moves from the superficial uh, transactional uh, approach to marketing the, the cause as opposed to, to, to a, uh, a more intimate relationship driven uh, process where we're talking about the actual impact we make and why that matters yeah. and, and looking for the people for whom that instantly resonates rather than feeling like we have to persuade them to like us. Yeah. I mean, I, I really uh, advocate getting away from the transactional um, type of fundraising or, or as I like to say, the hit it and quit it kind of fundraising, which you like hit people up for money, but it's like you see them as a walking checkbook. They know that you see them as a walking checkbook. There's nothing deeper there. Like, I think fundraising is always an opportunity to connect and create something deeper. Um, or, or not, right? Like, but, right. And some, also, I mean, sometimes like, the tech, the tech solutions now almost work against that because yeah, it's, because it's whether so, it's an like, integrated into the social media platform mm -hmm. or it's uh, something that you can put so easily on your website or something. It's it's click and give, and you know, how do you develop a relationship in that respect in in that situation? Yeah, you know, and I and I have to say. I don't want to millennial bash, but I'm going to millennial bash a little bit, which is, I think, uh, <laughs> the the bias of trying to do everything online takes the human experience out. And like at the end of the day, we're human beings wanting to have a human experience, wanting to connect with other human beings. And I think we have to be okay with like being humans, realizing that like we're going to screw up. Not every ask is going to go the right way, but there are going to be a lot of asks that do go the right way. But you're not going to know until you actually like have the meeting and sit down and do the ask. Um, and I would also say, you know, like Brene Brown's work is really interesting around vulnerability because like mm -hmm. I used to think like, oh gosh, if I go into this ask and I'm super vulnerable, but like, here's what's not going right. Here's what we've learned. Here's like, here are the things I'm really proud of. People are going to be like, oh, you're not professional and I'm not going to invest in you. But actually the opposite happened. Like people really appreciate talking to a human and having a real conversation, and, you know, and I would say, especially in New York city where it is such a competitive environment and everyone's really focused on like making it look good and like, you know, one upmanship and the competition. And I just, I feel like when you give yourself permission to be real, it gives other people permission to be real too. But it doesn't, it also bring the, the donor investor partner into the solution, into the story exactly. about it's, it's, how that impact happens because like, ah, so it's not going perfectly well, so I can make a difference. Whereas if it's going perfectly well, it's like, well, you know, nice my money is not yeah. really valuable because it's right. no different to anybody else's dollar. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Well, and look, I think people like, they like being part of solutions. They like giving advice. Um, and I think people like working on stuff together. I mean, you know, I, I just, I, I spend a lot of time thinking about fundraising and I think we have almost gotten too, too clever for our own good. Um, and ultimately I, I go back to like kindergarten principles of like, be nice, play nice together, be on a team and share. <laughs> really, really simple. Really simple. And, you know, like, and I've done all like the fancy fundraising courses and I've done like, you know, I've gone to like Columbia and Harvard and MIT and all the things, but like really it just boils down to like, 
be a human being, like be a nice person, be curious about other people. It's like, it's not super complicated. Right. We have, we have a tendency to uh, overcomplicate things. So what would you say then, uh, as we're coming to the last few minutes, um, I don't know if we actually answer this question directly. Maybe you just uh, summarize in a different way. What is the real, what's the fun then for you in fundraising and how do you inject that fun uh, for folks when you when you speak to them yeah I mean for me the fun and again this is just because I'm maybe a natural extrovert, extrovert but like I just like genuinely like people and I just like to you know talk to people and figure out what makes them tick and like figure out if there's common ground and so for me the fun is just like making new friends and look not every new friend you're gonna make is gonna support your cause but like it's a gift to spend time with people and it's a gift to like have real conversations because I feel like we were so like in these conversations where we're trying to appear a certain way or like, like have an agenda. And it's like, well, can we just like be human beings together? And so for me, the idea of fun is really about connecting with other human beings who, whose values may be aligned with mine who I might be a partner and might, might want to do stuff together. And if not, like maybe I've just made a new friend and like, that's cool too. It's, it's really interesting to hear you say that because I know a lot of people are attracted to uh, nonprofit or, or, or public service work because they um, not because it's not professional by, I don't mean that, but it's because they can be more true to themselves and so on and mm -hmm. so forth. But the, but the development side, the fundraising is the most professionalist professional, a most professionally developed aspect of nonprofits. And what I think I'm hearing from you, correct me if I'm wrong, is that we can go a bit too far in that regard. You know, we can, we can be almost too professional or too, you know, uh, almost dehumanize ourselves to a certain extent if we, if we take yeah. that too far. Uh, I think, am I putting too many words in your mouth yeah, there? I mean, I actually don't think, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't dichotomize it that way. I would say, I look, I'm a consummate professional and I go in and I understand like what my job is and I raise money. Um, but I don't think that being professional means leaving who you are at the door. And I think until we understand that we must bring our whole selves and like who I am with you, Kev, is like basically who I am with everybody. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and um, I'm not like a super formal person. Some people are, but at the end of the day, you have to be true to yourself and you have to be true to the mission and you also have to be effective in what you do. So it's not, a, it's not, it's not, it's not uh, that dichotomy as you, as you said. So I characterize it wrongly in the sense of, of professional, not professional. What you're really meaning is saying to be professional, you need to incorporate that humanity and not think that that, de that, that makes you unprofessional in any way. Correct. I mean, it, it's incorporating gotcha. humanity and also being strategic. That's great. All right. Well, we're just running up to uh Two o'clock. I can't um, believe it. Can you remind us uh, what you've got in terms of uh, training and how people can get in touch with you? I see you put riawong.com yeah. in the chat. That's the simplest way to get in touch that with you. That is the simplest way to get in touch with me. Uh, sign up for my mailing list and you'll get emails about new stuff happening. My training isn't quite ready yet, but I expect that it'll be available later this summer. I have my podcast, Nonprofit Lowdown. So subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Um, and that's a <laughs> weekly show. So I interview interesting folks in the nonprofit sector. But um, yeah, uh, that's those are the easy ways to get in touch with me. I am all over the socials, LinkedIn, etc. So feel free to reach out.
And Excellent. my name is uh, pretty unique, so pretty easy to find online. <laughs> well, thanks so much for spending uh, time with us today. We had a great conversation. Thanks, Kevin. It was such a pleasure. Thanks, everyone. Good luck. Thank you. We'll see you next time on Nonprofit Problem Solver. Thanks for joining us on the Nonprofit Problem Solver podcast. I'm grateful to my guest, Ria Wong, who you can find at riawong.com and on LinkedIn. And you can check out our podcast, The Nonprofit Lowdown. This episode was produced by Glenn Munoz at PodPro Audio. You can join future conversations live by visiting nonprofitproblemsolver.com. Connect with Kev on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. You're also invited to join a private Facebook group, Social Impact Practitioner, where every day we go deep into the practical and tactical work to accelerate your impact. Because good causes deserve better results.